The International Association for Near-Death Studies presents NDE Radio, a weekly exploration of near-death experiences and similar encounters with the other side. Now, here's your host, Lee Whitting. One of the natural reactions we hear about when someone has experienced a near-death or out-of-body event is the impulse to assure those folks trying to save your life that everything's fine, I'm right here, what's all the fuss about? Of course, they can't hear you because you're dead. Welcome to NDE Radio, brought to you by IANS, the International Association for Near-Death Studies. I'm your host, Lee Whitting. When it comes right down to it, many folks who undergo a near-death experience don't know what to do with the miracle they've been through and often go on living the life they had before. Others want to go on with the adventure, even to the point of surrounding themselves with folks who have had similar experiences. Our guest today is Kimberly Clark Sharp, who has not only written a book about her experience, but founded the very active IONS group of experiencers in Seattle, Washington. Moreover, she founded the Department of Social Work at the world's first bone marrow transplant center, pioneered in the field of critical care social work, and back when she was under 40, was named one of the 40 most influential people under the age of 40 in the Pacific Northwest. Her book is titled After the Light, The Spiritual Path to Purpose. Kimberly, welcome to NDE Radio. Well, thank you so much. How are you? I'm fine. I'm fine. I know it's earlier on the West Coast than it is out yeah. here on the East. I have my early morning voice on. <laughs> That's It's working <laughs> fine. Kim, please tell uh, the listeners how you came to have uh, your NDE and, and what you saw there. Well... <clears throat> My this, and that's my early morning clearing of throat. Yes. Um, I was with my father at the Department of Motor Vehicles in Johnson County, Kansas, in um, 1970, May 25th to be exact. But who's counting? Uh, in the late morning, and uh, we were leaving the building. And according to my dad, I, as we were exiting. I literally fell through the doorway into and then through his arms and hit the sidewalk. There happened to be a uniformed nurse passing who, of course, ran right over and determined I didn't have a pulse. A um, call was made to the Johnson County Volunteer Fire Department as well as to um, uh, Kansas City, Missouri, Hospital, regional hospital, St. Luke's to be exact, if anyone listening knows the area. And uh, an ambulance was being sent from that hospital. So what I'm sharing now is not my memory. I have no memory of that whole day other than my near-death experience. But according to my father, the volunteer fire department arrived first, determined, yes, I was not breathing. They applied a portable ventilator and um, turned it on, a flick of a switch, and it was on a different mode than ventilate. It was on like a vacuum mode. I'll put that in quotes, I guess. Mm. uh, If um, people have something blocking the airway, uh, food, you know, for an adult, like in a restaurant, which is actually called a cafe coronary, or children, that's why we tell our kids, don't run with candy in your mouth, you know, because... It can become lodged and block the airway. So this mode was to remove by air any blockage to the airway, and then uh, the switch could get flicked again, and air would be pumped into the body. 
Well, for me, it was like straight to vacuum mode. It was um, uh, not what was supposed to happen at that time because I had nothing blocking my airway. So whatever oxygen was left in my body was um, sucked out. I had a life sucked out of me, Lee. That's what happened, (laughs) Mm. (laughs) to be blunt. Yikes. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Yikes. Yeah, not not healthy. So they immediately were aware of what happened because I, of the dark discoloration, um, I guess, around my lips and my fingertips. And they flicked the switch on correctly, started pumping air in, but enough of my lung tissues had come in contact with itself to uh, not be able to expand and handle now the very violent onset of air. Mm. And the air, because of the seal around my mouth and nose, had nowhere to go but into my body and then find its way to my skin. And I essentially mildly inflated. It's called epithelial emphysema, uh, Mm. usually fatal outside of a hospital setting, And so the medics recognized what that situation was, stopped resuscitation efforts, turned to my father and said, I'm sorry, there's nothing more we can do. At that point, a complete stranger came out of the uh, ever-growing crowd surrounding this drama on the sidewalk, and he tried um, what we now know is citizen CPR, but he did mouth-to-mouth and chest resuscitation. And then he gave up and turned to my dad and said, I'm not getting a... Well, he was a swearing man. He said, I'm not getting a GD thing. And uh, I'm not a swearing woman, so fill in the blanks. And then uh, my dad, in his emotional trauma, um, he has no memory after that either. Until a loud cheer in the crowd at some point. He has no memory of the ambulance arriving, but... um, I was apparently breathing on my own, still unconscious. My body went to the back of the ambulance. He jumped in. We went to the hospital. Things uh, were shaky in the emergency room, but um, I hate to give the ending of a good book, but um, <laughs> I lived. So, but sh- don't tell anybody. <laughs> what, a, what a shock. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, <laughs> secret. so that's what I don't remember. What I do remember is what we now call a near-death experience. Um, I first recall hearing a woman's voice to my left saying, I'm not getting a pulse, I'm not getting a pulse. She was very agitated. And calmly, I thought, I turned to her and said, of course you're getting a pulse, otherwise we wouldn't be speaking. But she ignored me, and I kept trying to assure her, and it became more and more confusingly, to be honest, I, because I felt like my communication was absolutely normal, but it wasn't. She really couldn't hear me. And I'm so grateful that my father was there because he could give me so much information that I didn't have. So I, I do think that the woman's voice was actually the nurse who my father, you know, had said was attending me initially. <clears throat> anyway, because she was ignoring me, I finally thought, well, I'll ignore her. So I don't know if, you know, I would call this a near-death snit or what, but I decided <laughs> I, I was going to let go of that. And, and that decision about letting go was key. Uh, now, I'm, t- I'm speaking with some clarity now, 
even though it is early in the morning in Seattle. Mm. But, um, you know, initially this wasn't such a linear memory. I mean, I've had decades to process this. So uh, when I say letting go seemed to be really important, it wasn't a cognitive decision I made at that time that I recall. I just simply thought, I'm out of here. And then I found myself in a different place. I was surrounded by foggy material. I was warm, which was lovely. So I'm having all these reactions, you know. I'm, I, I, I had a, a thought process. I had emotional reactions to things. I remember being relieved at feeling warm. Uh, I remember um, feeling like uh, I was waiting for an airplane or a bus or something that was coming on schedule for which I had a ticket. No stress, no anxiety, complete calm and assurance, and an awareness that, by golly, I'd never felt this good, ever. There was just a... Uh, something about it that was right. It was the it was a correct experience. And um, before I could figure out who else I was with, because I did not feel alone, I just couldn't see anyone else. I also started goofing around with my vision, so I had sight, even though I didn't have eyeballs. But I could mm-hmm. perceive that this foggy material was made of glints of unimaginably be unimaginably bright light and then other mixed in there like little um, bottomless pits for lack of a better word but depth of darkness so it wasn't like white and black it was light and dark but altogether it made up gray mm-hmm. then um, and this is where I lose language so darn I was doing so well in this interview and now I'm <laughs> I'm at a loss, but... Oh, go for it. (laughs) Okay. um, A light, capital L, (laughs) a light kind of exploded underneath me um, with an energy that would be like an explosion, but without the pain or uh, noise. I I, I don't know how to... I really... This is where I I do fall down on language. This light was was under me, it exploded in all directions. I could turn my lack of a head, but nonetheless, but felt like a head, and perceive this light going out endlessly in all directions. And yet at the same time, and again, I can't describe it, but at the same time it was it was layering back on itself endlessly, and I had the knowledge that I was beholding eternity through this light and that the spreading out of the light was linear, but the layering was dimensions and that there was no time as we measure it on earth. This was endlessness. This was utter eternity, not only in how we mark time, but in dimensions. Um, and they were endless. And, so, you know, we've already met, well, we, we knew that there's, we know there's three dimensions. That's how we perceive. Uh, other dimensions have been mapped, I think, up to seven now. But uh, it's, it, it just goes on and on and on. But none of that really mattered. What, what mattered to me was the love that I felt from this light. It was 
uh, immense. If I had been in flesh, I would have exploded like a bomb had gone off. I would have been in a jillion happy pieces, though, because this love just penetrated everything about me. It was personal. Uh, it was intense, but fantastic, and um, and communicated with me in a way that was also perfect, but it wasn't English. It was, upon reflection later, a combination of like math and music. Again, what we call ineffable. There's just no words in any language that would be as good as the communication between us. And I got to ask questions that, um, you know, later I thought were pretty profound, like, you know, what's the meaning of life? Why are we born? The answers came back very simply. Uh, the meaning to life was um, to learn uh, why are we born. It was love, um, uh, that this life is school. And, and it wasn't like I was learning anything, Lee, though. It was like I was remembering. My joke is that if I had a head, I would have smacked it. You're like, oh, yeah, oh, yeah, oh, yeah. <laughs> it was glorious. It was fantastic. It was everything at once, everything I might have been in any past. And, and I don't mean like reincarnation in that sense. It's just that my, here we go. So my soul was eternal, and I was with eternal peace with something that had created me that was taking the form of a light. It's it's what I call God, but um, there's they, even that is lame. It's there. There's nothing. Uh, there's nothing to call this thing that we call God. Uh, okay, God Kim, works because me, we have a common language. But let, let yeah. me ask you a question because this, and I'm sure this has occurred to you in the past. If you were remembering at last what it is that you're that you came to Earth to learn, why did you have to come to Earth to learn it in the first place if you already knew it? Um, that is one of the questions I asked, and it was almost humorous in in uh, again God's response, for lack of a better word. And it was basically that we all bang on the door to be born into this life; that it is a an experience we eagerly seek out for that learning. There's something about our souls, and, and this is as best as I can answer, Lee. I'm not a philosopher, just a person now again, but um, it's like there's something within our souls that has to have this earthly experience. And um, I don't know beyond that other than what I was told. That we we, I'm, I'm speaking in metaphor now, but that we banged on the door of life. We really, really wanted to be born. And what I don't understand is why you know some people suffer, but apparently that is um, part of the school as well. Right. And uh, it does, though. Um, I'm skipping over uh, you know substantial part of my near death experience yet, but it did helped me to become a social worker because I I really want to help people who are suffering and I'm uh, deeply committed to it to this very day. I've already had some helping business even before this interview. 
So uh, feeds my soul, and so whatever choice I made, yay, because I really <laughs> like helping people. Let me take and you back. People to help on this planet. So <laughs> let let me that. take you back into the near death experience again, because one of the things you mentioned was uh, the light came from under you. Many people describe uh, like walking either through a tunnel or toward a light uh, and then entering it. But it sounds like you were totally immersed in it almost immediately. Yeah, like a tea bag. Uh, no tunnel. No. No walking. Um, it was just there. I was completely immersed is a good word. Thank you for that bit of vocabulary. Um, yeah, completely immersed immediately. And it and, sounds also uh, like the, the light was moving, that it was rolling, that it was almost like, uh, creation was taking place. Do you suppose? Yes. In, in, yes. in that timeless place you were witnessing creation again? I was witnessing everything. There was no beginning and end. It was always. It was um, beyond creation. But this was my creator. And, you know, in the three-pound universe that lives between my ears called my brain, I can't wrap, it, I can't wrap my brain around it, what um, eternity means. But it's very important. <laughs> that I know. Mm. But yes, it, you know, boy, you're, you're giving me a concept again, and I'm grateful actually, about creation though, because this was like a big bang. And mm. that's, I've never thought about that. Hmm. I'm gonna have to say, End this interview, go back, think about it, come back and go, hey, I think you might be right. But I don't know. But yeah, it was like the Big Bang. And I, I could observe this light going everywhere. And it was like an explosion under me and an immediate immersion. And But then where it's tricky for me, though, again, is that this forever stuff, that it just went on forever. What's so, so amazing? That leads what's, me to believe that we do too. How's that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, what's also so amazing about this is that it's, as you described it, it's so vast, it's uh, and timeless, and yet you felt it was uh, extremely personal. It was entirely personal, not extremely. There was like nothing in all of existence but this light and myself. But even even the light. I think was a representation of God, a concept that even near death I wasn't ready to experience. I, I don't know why I think that, I just do. Um, mm. <clears throat> I think calling the light God would be like looking up at my ceiling at, you know, the lights and going, oh, that's the light, but that would discount everything that brought that light into where I'm sitting right now. You know, the wires in in our home, the wires underground, you know, the, the rain that falls in the Cascade Mountains that provides the water supply for Seattle's electricity. I mean, it's, it's complicated. And so is God, and yet so very simple, because it's about love. End of story. Everything. Everything is about love. It sounds so hippy-dippy, but that is it. Um... 
And, and love and love is personal. It was in this case. Um, yeah. Absolutely. So I was very happy in this situation, but then I was sent back, and that did not make me happy. I was really unhappy and argued. Basically, even though this communication was not in English, uh, I said no, but not in English, but that was my intent. And, um, you know, God said yes, and I said no. I mean, it was like, a, as I recall, this, not an argument that involved anger, but it was like I was being stubborn and God was being patient, but, you know, God had a plan. But I can say that, you know, one can argue with God. God's going to win in that situation. <laughs> but uh, I was given the opportunity to resist. And then uh, I was sent back, though. I missed my body by about four feet. And again, without eyeballs, could perceive the physical body lying on the sidewalk. Um, it meant nothing to me. I recognized it. I had some affection for it. Uh, my my uh, metaphor for that is that it's like a, you know, my favorite coat that I wear wear all winter and love, and it suits me very well in winter. But then when spring comes, it's uncomfortable, and I take it off. And that's how I felt about my body. It had done a great job in the short amount of time I had it, but it was over. But yet, I also didn't want to be just hanging out like a ghost on the sidewalk. So I, I watched a man bend over my body, and the moment his mouth touched the body's mouth, I went uh, now, just very surely, over to my body through this man who turned out to be the Good Samaritan, as my dad called him, and into my body through him. And as I was going through him, I could feel everything emotionally about him. And it was his compassion that, and, and compassion being a form of love that drew me back like a lighthouse. I'd just been with the greatest love of all. So, of course, I was going to recognize it elsewhere, and, and that was what got me back to my body. But still, I wasn't happy. And then I was running around fully conscious in a dank, cold body. And my I did pull my uh, medical records from the hospital um, about 20 years ago and uh, read that my admitting body temperature was 86. So no wonder I was mm. cold. 86 sure. sounds lovely if you're in Hawaii, but if we're in our bodies, that's chilly. So uh, I was miserable again. I called out to God. Uh, God showed up in the form of communication, um, opened a portal to my right, and there was my heaven, which um, looked like a, a calendar from Kentucky. Oh, you know what, Lee? When skeptics say, oh, near-death experiencers get what they expect, I did not expect Kentucky. A state I have yet to visit, as a matter of fact. There's nothing about Kentucky in my background whatsoever. But it looked like bluegrass country, you know, just but emerald grass, endless blades. I could perceive the consciousness in every blade. This, what I call heaven, was fully alive. It was wonderful. And I was given to understand that if I went through this portal, this window-like thing, there would be no coming back. It would be my final decision. So, okay, I am finally deciding, and off I go. But before I got all the way through, I was shown images um, of people mm -hmm. I would meet 
should I choose to live, which didn't interest me. They were strangers. But they did have, like, portraits and and uh, descriptions underneath that I could read, like best friend, neighbor, co-worker, mm. mentor. It went on like that. It meant nothing to me. Um, I saw what I would describe as where where land meets water, uh, where mountains meet water. I knew it wasn't Kansas, and that that's where I would be living if I chose to live. But then I saw myself being of service, and I thought something in my brain like, cool. And um, I'd made my decision. This, this, There were two things, though, I remember hearing that I never forgot. One was that I called this place homey home, my time with the light and what I observed, and that as I was exiting this experience, uh, a man's voice said that I would forget except that it would be as it would be manifest. And I remembered that. And I actually had to look up manifest in the dictionary when I recovered. And it means obvious. And it became obvious when I began working with dying people, which uh, happened, you know, within a few years. Everything that I saw has happened. It's all been there. And I'm back and I'm happy and happy helping people. I'm a happy social worker. Happy doing this interview. Um, I, I want to take the fear out of everything, which um, can be challenging every day. Every day the world offers something scary. We're experiencing that now. But yet there's more love than there is fear. And we just have to garner it and demonstrate it. And all will be well. And you founded, uh, as a result of all this, the INS Seattle, uh, local group, which is really the most active group in the, in the whole system. Yeah, uh, I don't know if it's the most active, but it's the oldest. The whole concept of, uh, support groups for near-death experiencers happened with, um, one of the founders of INS, um, Dr. Ken Ring. And he, he was, you know, very stressed by near-death experiencers descending upon his home and office in Connecticut, where he lived, and something had to be done, and I was the social worker, and it's like, huh, groups, and it was a good idea. And so I started uh, with three other near-death experiencers, Seattle Ions. All four of us met in a living room. Um, 33 and a half years ago, it was June of 1982, and the next month we met, and there were 25 of us without just word of mouth. And um, now at Seattle Ions, um, in that 33 and a half years, more than 10,000 separate individuals have been through the door because we have sign-in sheets, and people do count. That's a lot wow. of people. So it sure is. Huge. And it's it's a it's a powerful thing when many people who have had near death experiences get together in a in a group situation. We feel that at the conference all the time. Oh, you know. By the way, my other claim to fame, besides establishing the whole concept of support groups, is that I have never missed an Ions conference, and there's no one in the organization who can. Stick that flag in the ground of bragging and go, yeah, but I would not miss a conference. I mean, talk about feeding one's soul. 
Oh, I know. They're like hey, the Kim, best. In, the, in the minute we have left, tell us about your book. Oh, well, After the Light uh, uh, begins with actually a shoe that I found on a ledge at Harborview Medical Center where I worked for 10 years. That shoe on a ledge is its own uh, radio show, by the way, Lee. Uh, it's become very famous to the point of urban legend, but yes. here, here's the person who found it. So that was huge because that was the woman that was being resuscitated who was in a, able to find this shoe on a ledge in a different floor in a different part of a massive hospital. So um, uh, there's there's that. And what was the question? <laughs> <laughs> oh, just uh, just story. give give. Uh, if people buy your book, what are they going to find there? Oh, yeah, the book. Obviously, I'm not very good at self-promoting that book. <laughs> uh, so anyway, that starts with the shoe on the ledge, the near-death experience you've just heard with more reflection, uh, and then leaving home, and uh, what we call woo-woos, another term that I'm going to take credit for, and um, uh, then surviving cancer, marriage, uh, founding Seattle Ions, finding Ions, um, and just lots and lots and lots and lots and lots of near-death experience accounts um, from children, frightening near-death experiences, and suicide attempts, which academically became my uh, substrata of research at the University of Washington, where I became a clinical assistant professor. Wow. Kim, unfortunately, we're out of time for today. My thanks to Kimberly Clark Sharp for sharing her story with us. If you'd Thank like you, to listen Lee. to this show again, oh, you're welcome, or any other of our previous programs, please visit our website at nderadio.org. And for more information about IANS, please check that website at iands.org. This is Lee Whitting saying thanks for listening. <laughs>